everybody get ready for Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. A foodie born and bred, my wife Nikki loves chatting up chefs, dining out, and insider industry buzz. And my husband David thinks a great meal is nothing but a good burger, a frosty brew, and a check for under $20. Because he is cheap. Well, maybe so, but Foodie married Beast anyway, and together we've got the Food and Wine Variety Show that has everyone talking. It's Foodie and the Beast, and we are on now. Hey, everybody, welcome to Foodie and the Beast with David Nicanellis on another stunning Sunday morning. Here it's not America. really a stunning Sunday. It's cold. I want to remind everybody that along with hearing the show, you can see us on Facebook Live. Uh, go to Nikki Nellis, N Y C C I Nellis. And you'll see it there. But or... not yet, because we're going to be interviewing Mitch Berliner, who's at Central Farm Markets this morning. And then you can watch us All right. well, on yeah. Facebook so, Live. So the anticipation builds. <laughs> yes, and I exactly. want to thank Tessa Nellis, our uh, cinematographer, and her assistant, Isabella Wida, who are here. Cheap shout-outs for you guys. It is Isabella. All right, so joining us today... Isabel. Oh, there's no uh. It's Isabel. Did I say Isabella? <laughs> yes. Is that why you're blushing? <laughs> Come on, you're wasting your time. Just say no. Okay. So back with us is Erica Meyer. She's the executive director and founder of Compassion Over Killing. It's a national nonprofit animal protection organization. And we're having a really happy conversation with her today. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, you know what? It it's may important. not be happy, but it's true. It's very important. Uh, so they expose cruelty to farmed animals and promote a, a vet, basically a vegan lifestyle. Am I right? Mm-hmm. I am right. Mexico in a Bottle mm-hmm. is a great event coming up. Susan Koss is in. This is the fifth year, right? Yes. Uh, it features more than uh, 130, I love this, expressions of mezcal. And some expression. You can barely talk after you drink mezcal. <laughs> uh, not if you seven drink restaurants. It, not if you drink it responsibly. Right. I don't. Uh, agave and wine tastings <laughs> and more. And she's brought in uh, Joanna uh, Hernandez, who, who uh, founded uh, Manos de Maiz. It mm-hmm. brings back the real flavors of corn. Right? Am I right? Yep. That corn you're eating? Hashtag this is corn. That green giant corn? <laughs> not good. And Eric Hernandez uh, from Alma Mezcaleria. He's known to some, uh, he says, as the Indiana Jones of Mezcal. We're going to find out where that comes from because he's wearing a different kind of hat. I don't he get it. He was wearing a different kind <laughs> of hat. Right. I thought you made that up for a minute. I didn't know Are what we you were talking this? about. Are you doing this? No, go ahead. Have at All it. All right. Well, and speaking of Mexican cuisine, uh, you know Ivan Irikanen from his awesome Serbian uh, restaurant, Ambar. But originally, he was with Richard Sandoval doing Latin-flavored, I guess, Latin-themed food. And he's, op- he's going to be opening two restaurants, uh, Tacos, Tortas, and Tequila, called TTT, which sounds like what we used to refer to when the kids had to go to the bathroom. But uh, That must have been a different wife. And Buena Vida. I never said that. Buena ever. Vida. Buena Vida. Yvonne's um, uh, in with his chef uh, de cuisine, Graham Bartlett. We're going to be talking about and tasting some of the great stuff. And if if Ambar is any indication of what his food is going to be like at these restaurants, you're going to want to go. Okay. And then let's talk about our drink segment today. Yes. So uh, Georgian Cuisine is taking over the D.C. area. We're talking about Tbilisi, not Atlanta, just in case. (laughs) Okay. Like Georgia. Do you want to finish? Why don't you finish? It's okay. I'm good. No, finish, please. All right. Well, and we've got a new Georgian restaurant <laughs> opening up. Uh, Jonathan Nelms and Jacob Weinstein are in with Taste and Talk of Supra and also of, of great Georgian wines. But first, we're going to go talk to Mitch Berliner. Okay. I can't hear him. Oh, so you don't have, Hey, Mitch, on. are you there? Yes, I am. Good morning, children. Yeah, I, This is going to be great. This is going to be all David Nellis all the time because Nikki's headphones aren't working. So uh, That's usually what my life is like anyway. I know. I love it. Tell us what's going on at Central Farm Markets today. Well, of course, the big news 
for you and all of your listeners, the strawberry season has officially kicked off. Strawberry We've got beautiful season. strawberries mm-hmm. at Bethesda, Mosaic, Pike Central on Saturday is open now. And next week, we also have our brand new uh, Central Farm Market opening on Saturdays at Montgomery Mall on the backside. And How many vendors? We, Montgomery we Mall's got a huge parking lot. With an amazing 45 vendors. Wow. Artists and food producers, mm-hmm. live music, chef demos. We've got all kinds of stuff. And we've got a special for your listening audience. Anybody that comes up next week only to the information tent and says, I'm a fan of Foodie and the Beast, we will give them a $5 gift certificate at the Montgomery Mall new location. Now, if I come and say I'm a fan of Foodie and the Beast, can I just get the $5? You're an exception. It's not for friends and family. You are the man. That's (laughs) great. Now, we'll take care of you, too. Don't worry. That's great. So um, uh, what time does the market open next week? Okay, so the new market is 9 to 1.30. Plenty of parking, 45 vendors. Tons of strawberries, asparagus, the rhubarb just started coming in. So you can make the most beautiful strawberry, rhubarb, desserts, and compotes, jams, jellies, ice cream, you name it. All good. Now, make sure everybody knows about the markets that are open today. Today, come on down. Uh, We still, I think the strawberries are going fast, and there's plenty of asparagus. We're in Mosaic Central District in Fairfax. Uh, and we are also at the Bethesda Elementary School in downtown Bethesda, both open today. And uh, come on down and see us. Live music, of course, as always. A lot of people uh, are now buying plenty of plants and herbs. I think we're pretty safe. That's what we need. To uh, start planting. It's going to be in the 90s this week. All right, but not today. All right, stay warm. Best of luck at the markets today. All right, so we'll see everybody next week. At any one of our markets, and especially at our brand new grand opening Saturday at the mall. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Mitch. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. So let's talk Supra. I don't know who wants to talk first. Jonathan, Jacob. Let's talk about Supra and Georgian cuisine. Why? Why? Yeah. Why? Sorry. Go ahead. I mean, seriously. I'm excited. (laughs) I can't help it. Okay. Then continue. Why Georgian cuisine? Well, there's one thing the D.C. food scene didn't have yet. I've been traveling over there for almost 30 years since it was still the Soviet Union. And back in high school, we had a Georgian exchange student visit, and I kind of was intrigued by it growing up in Florida next to our Georgia. And I spent the next year over there in the Soviet Union, got introduced to Georgian food, and then I guess I've just been looking for excuses to eat it ever since. And so, you know, we lived in Russia for a few years. My family and I moved back and we really miss Georgian food. So, I know, uh, but can you give us a little specifics? I mean, what was it about Georgian food that was so appealing to you? Well, I think it was part of it was sort of contrast to life in the Soviet Union, that here's this little pocket of sunshine where all the wine comes from, the agriculture, the beach, skiing. It's like a little bit of California. So no people dressed in gray standing in line? Uh, they might have been standing in line, but they probably the had a glass of Sabarabi and... wine in their hands <laughs> while they were standing in line. So they were making the best of it. <laughs> <laughs> and were there certain dishes that you were like, wow, I just have never tasted anything like this. I want to bring this back to the States because I don't think people eat this way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff here, uh, as you can see. Um, there's you know a lot of a lot of vegetable dishes, the hachapuri that I think D.C. has been introduced to a little bit, uh, bread stuffed with cheese. We have Which, can- let's be honest, 
is really delicious. <laughs> I mean, really. it's just like this ooey gooey doughy bread stuffed with ooey gooey cheese. I mean, it's kind of hard to go wrong. How could you I, go wrong? I would eat <laughs> cheese stuffed with bread too. Either way, <laughs> yeah. I don't really. Well, don't you care. can have yeah, exactly. I mean, you can have uh, bread stuffed with cheese. You can have dumplings stuffed with soup. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, you can have kebabs of all sorts. I mean, for people that have never had Georgian food before, I think of it as. A little bit Mediterranean, a little bit Middle Eastern, but a lot of just Georgian because you know they're up in the mountains, they're fighting off invaders, surrounded by this empire, that empire, and you know basically took a little bit of this, took a little bit of that, but held on to a lot of just Georgian. So, what were you trying to do when you opened up Supra? Because I mean, the space is really beautiful, and what I think a lot of people think of Georgian cuisine, they would think very rustic. Right. And Without being modern. Do you know yeah, what I mean? I, no, I do. And I, there's certainly a, a, an element of rustic in, in Supra and in Georgian food in general. But if you go to Tbilisi today, you see a country that's really passionately about holding on to their roots, their language, their culture in many ways. And yet they're very Western oriented, very modern. It's a very young country. And so in Supra at 11th and M, what we're trying to do is show this sort of stylish, modern Georgia, the Georgia that's getting on the cover of Vogue magazine, the the Georgia that everyone's covering is the best country you've never been to for tourism, for off-the-beaten-path wine oh my God, vacations. am I thinking field trip? Is anybody I else think, on board? I, I, I want to know, right know how many times airport. you've seen travel we'll and tourism to <laughs> travel yeah. and tourism articles with the headline, Georgia on my mind. Is that cliche? Yeah, that, that yeah. is totally yeah. cliche. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you won't I mean, find you've that seen phrase that everywhere? anywhere in our restaurant. You won't find the song on our sound system. <laughs> okay, okay, good. No Ray Charles? Ray okay. Charles, yeah. So. <laughs> All right, so... Uh, so what are we pouring first? First this morning, excuse me. Well, Jacob, what are we pouring first? And so this Hi, is your Jacob. <laughs> Hi. Um, so we've got the Bagrationi Blossom. Jacob, you got to get in front of the mic or okay. else we can't hear um, you. We've got the Bagrationi Blossom. Um, so Bagrationi is the sparkling wine um, mm-hmm. that we have here. Uh, Georgia doesn't make a ton of sparkling wine, but this is, you know, kind of the best and brightest out of that country Can you right compare now. for people who maybe haven't had an opportunity to try it, can you compare their sparkling wine to another region's sparkling wine? Like, would you could say it's more like... Prosecco style, or is it in the method of champagne? Like, how would you how would you describe it? So it's definitely modern um, winemaking method. So it's this one actually is a Charmat method. So this is done in the in the steel tank. Um, mm-hmm. I would say most Georgian wine uh, tends to be sweeter than the things you're going to get in Western wine. So okay. this one is definitely uh, a sweeter sparkling. All, well, right, well, all right. Well, while you pass that out, yeah, we're going right. to talk to Erica Meyer. We're going to get a little serious oh, in Nikki. studio. <laughs> No, we don't have to serious. treat it that way. It's this is reality, isn't it? It is. Erica, Erica is the executive director of Compassion Over Killing. I think everybody's going to be really happy that they have a drink in their hand yeah, now. So gonna, pass out those drinks, one. okay? Because she's going to mess with your head a little. Okay. So why don't we take it from the top? A little bit about your background in COK and how it all got started. Yeah, well, Compassion Over Killing is a nonprofit farm animal advocacy organization. We were founded and based in D.C., and we work nationwide on uh, exposing what happens behind the closed doors of factory farms and slaughterhouses. And then we so also. Big ag specific, big though, ag. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we focus on the systemic cruelties of the factory, factory farming systems. Mm hmm. And we also work a lot to promote healthier vegan eating. Well, let me ask you, uh, start off with the big question, because, you know, if you haven't heard what goes on in the big slaughterhouses, then you'd be living under a rock. And a lot of people have seen those, you know, those those films. Where are you on on, you know, field raised, you know, beef and pasture raised Mm -hmm. beef and and, you know, essentially compassionate slaughter of, you know, in quotes, maybe, of animals. Where do you guys stand on that? Or humanely certified, all that. 
Yeah, and there are some growing labels out there because of consumer interest. But the reality is the overwhelming majority of the food, the meat, milk, and eggs we eat are still coming from these very intensive systems of Mm -hmm. confinement. And even when we move towards more humane systems, it's really about being less cruel rather than humane. I mean, there really is no such thing as humane slaughter. Cruelty, you know, cruelty-free is a, a concept that when you remove the violence from the system that you can adopt to. And so even cage-free eggs, as an example, are not cruelty-free. There's still a lot of um, suffering in, in those systems. So it is better. These animals living pasture-raised or cage-free or free-range are leading better lives than those on factory farms, mm-hmm. but they're not leading idealized. We would still never want our dogs or cats to suffer in those systems. Well, so I know you guys had something that just dropped last Tuesday, right? A big promotion. So we want to talk about that, but we're going to take a quick commercial break. And then when we get back, we're going to talk about uh, swine slaughtering. And we're going to drink heavily during the break. Yes, exactly. (laughs) This is David and Nikki Nellis with Foodie and the Beast. Thanks for joining us this morning. We'll be back in just a minute. Okay, we're back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. We're talking to Erica Meyer, who is the Executive Director of Compassion Over Killing. Um, And you had a big rally on Tuesday. On Tuesday. So Why don't tell you us- take it from the top and tell us all about it? Yeah. So we were uh, in front of the USDA last week, mm-hmm. and we were uh, delivering more than a quarter million um, signatures on a petition that's aimed to stop the USDA. That's the U.S. Department of Agriculture's high-speed slaughter proposal. So what the USDA is attempting to do is deregulate some of the slaughter systems in the country by removing some of the government inspectors and putting those powers in the hands Great. of the slaughterhouses. So it's a reduced inspection program that also allows the slaughterhouses to speed up the kill floor so that the system can move a lot faster. You know, but that's given a- all the, you know, there's just been so many um, instances of contaminated foods I mean, that just seems like well, no matter where you are, whether you're vegan or not or whatever, it just seems like such a a bad idea. Yeah, but the government's deregulate. They're they're taking you know the auto emission standards away. They're you know they're opening public lands for oil drilling. There's a whole deregulation. Yeah, this move here. this is a proposal that's actually been in place for over 20 years by it's bad a, people. Okay, can you let It's her a finish? pilot program that they're trying to establish and allow to go nationwide. And what we did a few years ago in 2015 is we sent an undercover investigator to work inside one of the so-called high-speed slaughterhouses. What does that mean? For people who don't understand, I mean, what is a high-speed slaughterhouse? Yeah, so this is one. This is in the pilot program where mm-hmm. they were testing out how the system worked. So they allowed the facility. It's a um, hormel supplier in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. They allowed the system to test out this pilot program, and they removed some of the government inspectors, put those hands, uh, those power, those uh, inspection powers in the hands of the employees, and they allowed the kill floor, the slaughter line speed was regulated at a certain point for USDA inspectors to view the bodies. And they, because the USDA inspectors are not doing that as much, they're allowing the slaughterhouse to determine basically how fast they can move the animals down the kill floor. Okay. And the challenge with that is feeding the system. So the, the, they don't want to stop the slaughterhouse line from moving. Mm-hmm. So animals are being pushed and poked and prodded, even animals who can barely walk. These are downed animals whose legs have given out right. or are suffering from other injuries or ailments, and they're being pushed 
and pushed to get there. They're being dragged and poked, prodded, and then the workers there are being forced to keep up with these very high speeds. Mm-hmm. So they're taking inhumane shortcuts to get the animals to the kill Right, because they have to keep their numbers, right? They have to keep their numbers. And then what we also documented is there, there are a few laws that regulate slaughter inspections. One of them is the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act. It only applies to pigs and cows, so chickens don't fall under these protections. Okay. But that's those, a talk for another time. Definitely. But, okay. it, but in in the system, the USDA employees are supposed to be watching what's happening so that the animals are at least stunned before they go and have their throats slit and then dumped into these hot water tanks. This is this puts these animals at risk because it's moving so quickly. It's just not happening. It's not happening in an appropriate way. And inhumane, in, improper stunning is very common. So what was the response to the petition? So we, well, we, when we released this investigation in 2015, the USDA and, uh, stated that what we documented is cruel and inappropriate and mm-hmm. potentially violations of but their standards. But wasn't there also, I don't know if it passed, but wasn't there also some um, legislation that was put up on the floor that they didn't want like secret videos being shot in these farms anymore, that they would make that illegal? Yeah, How does that apply to what you guys mm-hmm. are doing? That's a really great question because as more videos are coming out about these systems, the industry is working hard not to stop the abuses we're documenting. No, just but to, to stop, stop people finding yeah, out. to make it a right. crime to document and expose it. And these are all state-level so-called ag-gag laws, and they're meant to suppress this information from getting out to the public. Which I really, I mean, no matter where you are on the spectrum of how you eat or what you do, I, just the fact that people would want to stop uh, investigations from happening. Right. They want know. to stop the American public from knowing, knowing what's happening, where they're from. Everybody should be outraged. From. Right. Yeah. Everybody should be this outraged. It's a very somber scene. Well, it is a somber scene. It's a somber so, conversation. So now what happens? What's next? So, right now with this proposal, the USDA is allowing the public to comment on it. So, Americans can just fill out a form and. and All right, everybody. Well, can you open give, up your form? Open Nikki, up your phones and fill out the form. Give Nikki the link to that, and it'll go up absolutely. on the list. Yeah, right, absolutely. Yes, and so absolutely. that closes on May second. Okay, and then they'll take those considerations along with all the other information that everything that so far has been documented about this program demonstrates it doesn't protect uh, workers, it doesn't protect animals, and it is a, cons- a huge concern for food safety issues. Okay, and so what about? I'm just curious about the workers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has to way on the workers too is there do you guys handle talk about that side of it as well because i would assume workers who are working in these slaughterhouses are are struggling i mean they are victims of this abusive system just like the animals are I mean, right they are forced to perform things that you would never want. i can speak to that because i used to work with shady brook farms and i had to go to their in quotes production facility and they have padres working the kill line who are standing over people, counseling them, and they only work, I think they work 45-minute shifts because they get so depressed, they yeah, pull them out. Yeah, a very high turnover rate because of, you know, the work that's being done is... Uh-huh. So, so yeah, I mean, we there are labor unions that are opposed to this and other, you know, workers' rights issues that are coming out. I mean, we're even learning, not even just related to this specific um, investigation that we've done, but that in some slaughterhouses are not given appropriate breaks. And so some people, there was a report that came out about a year ago that in some chicken slaughterhouses, employees wear diapers because they're not given breaks to go to the bathroom. That's insane. I mean, it's it's hard because we're all here in the food industry. And, you know, there's so much talk about, you know, working with your local farmers and knowing where your food comes from. And we live in this bubble 
of thinking that the food world is really changing. But that's for such a small, small group. Yeah. And the truth is, is that not only isn't the food world changing for the masses or the people who can't afford it or the people who maybe don't care. Or don't have but access. It, right, or don't have access. But it sounds like it's getting worse. Well, yeah, they're, I mean, increasingly, as you mentioned with these laws, I mean, they're just trying to stop people from learning what's really happening. And, uh, and we believe our mission is to educate the public. We want to give people this information, the truth, so they can make a more informed choice in the marketplace. Okay, so tell people how they can get involved. Well, visit our website, which is cok.net, and from there you can access all the information about this specific initiative, the Modernization of Swine Slaughter Inspection, which is anything but modern. It Uh rolls back all the progress. You can also learn more about our other initiatives to protect animals, as well as how to learn about vegan eating. And I think the only upside is in 10 years when I'm wearing diapers, I can find a job on the kill line at a chicken factory somewhere. Because he's never retired. Okie dokie, so Smokey. That's good. All right, so let's go back to the Super Boys. Here, I, I, I want that link too. By okay. The way. Um, um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about Georgian wines. You brought in a whole bunch today. The Georgians claim they invented wine. Is it true? They say it's true. There was a conference in France, in Bordeaux of all places, last year, and. I don't think anyone, I think they accepted the Georgians' point of view, or at least the latest archaeological evidence is that 8,000 years ago they found Kvevri, which is the Georgian name for the terracotta uh, jars that are in which the wine is made in the traditional method. So they, they've got 8,000 years of uninterrupted winemaking in Georgia, and they're claiming the record, and I'm not arguing with them. Okay, can you tell, dating. Okay, so, so can you tell us a little bit about the, the jars? Sure. So, but I need you in front of the mic. Absolutely. So, Thank you. Uh, a kvevri is a, basically a terracotta amphora. It's about seven to 10,000 liters, usually large enough that a grown man will get down in there and clean it out. And in the in traditional... Wait, wait, wait. Is this like a cave? Wait, I'm totally confused. Is Just this a don't cave? put the cork in while he's doing exactly. it. Okay. <laughs> it's a cave. No, no, no. no. It's a pot. It's, it's a, a pot. It's a 10,000 liter egg-shaped pot. Okay. Comes so down huge. to a point at the bottom. It's huge. Okay. Uh, a huge part. I would not... Climb down into that. If anybody has a visual, I would not be the one to get down into. But I guess I could. You could. Okay. And so what we would do is we would put you down inside this terracotta thing with a. That's a great idea, exactly. man. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> give you any ideas. Wait, wait. What's there in there? Can you hear anything? Oh, well, you know. Awesome. Uh, That's great. A lot of secrets in the Georgian mountains. <laughs> no, no. Right. So anyway, so someone gets down in there. They clean the thing out every season. They when they harvest the grapes, it's minimally in, intrusive. Uh, they they throw the grapes into the kvevri and then let nature take its course. They don't huh. use any brewer's yeast. They don't use any artificial ingredients. They basically just let fermentation happen spontaneously. And then with a white wine, for example, a white-skinned grape, for example, it sits in the kvevri for a few months and it draws color out of the grapes. Um, and so what would be a white wine normally, a, a grape, that would produce a white wine in the West will produce an almost whiskey-colored amber wine in this method. So you've heard of orange wines. You've heard of amber wines. That's the quintessentially Georgian wine is to take a white-skinned grape. And this thing is called a kvevri? Kvevri, yeah. Q-V-E-V-R-I. I'm not even going to try. Like most Georgians, don't try. You don't want to be cleaning a kvevri when you're verklempt. Is that right? (laughs) Okay, okay. I just want to make sure. All right, so what did you pour for us next? Um, so this wine is actually super cool. So there's very few uh, grape varietals in the world that are both red flesh and also red um, skin. Mm-hmm. And so Separavi, which is the predominant red varietal in Georgia, um, is one of those grapes. So this here is free-run Separavi juice, just freshly crushed grape juice that's then spontaneously fermented. Um, so the rosé color is actually from 
the juice itself, not, not from, from any contact, contact from the skin. Interesting. So okay. it's really cool, super unique. Um, it's done in a French, like, Provence style, and I, I think it can wrestle with any any French Provence. Well, I mean, I have to be honest, just from the color alone, it has a super Provence style, because I think yes. you're seeing so many rosés hit the market right now, but they're, you know, the, like, Spanish ones and a lot of the ones from, like, um, even Virginia and California, like, they're much darker in mm-hmm. color. So it just looks, um, it's really pretty over there. I think it should be coming over here. But before we finish with you, you brought in all this food today, which is very far away from us over there. And I'd like to just know, just tell us about two of the items right now. And then we'll talk about the other two items on the next segment. Cool. Um, so I used to run the cheese program at Ripple. So mm-hmm. I, I, my belief, every meal should start with some awesome cheese. Okay. Well, we love um, that. So we've got Sulguni uh, and smoked Sulguni and Gouda. Mm-hmm. Their version of Gouda is actually a cheese that's aged um, in the sheepskin. Gouda means sheepskin in Georgian. Okay. Um, and then here we have pachali, which are um, walnut and vegetable pâtés. Yum. So it's a walnut and Georgian style, uh, as our chef calls it, which is cilantro, um, marigold, uh, blue fenugreek, coriander. That's Georgian style, uh, that set of spices. Um, so all of those are in all of that with a little bit of fresh sumac on top. Okay, great. Um, I think what we're going to do now is we're going to take a break while you pass all that around. Everybody's looking at that food. Dig in. It's not there just to look at. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about some mix- mezcal and Mexico in a bottle. This is David and Nikki Nellis with Foodie and the Beast. We'll be back in just a minute. All right. We're back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. Before we get back to the show, I just want to thank our sponsors, our friends at ProFish, the best sustainable seafood in the world, probably, mm-hmm. or the galaxy. Uh, the wonderful market at River Falls, a beautiful specialty market in the heart of downtown Potomac. Uh, meat crafters, great skinny salamis, and central farm markets. Yep. If you're not a sponsor, shame on you. Mm-hmm. Cough up that money and join the show. That's what I say. Absolutely. All right, so now we're going to talk about Mexico. Um, Susan Koss. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Susan so Goss is, 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 is like Nikki. I do not pronounce it correctly, so don't shame me, okay? Mexico okay. Is, is like Nikki is a foodie born and bred, and for five years now you've been running this Mexico in a Bottle event, and I'm going to ask you to tell us all about tell it. Tell us all about it. Yes, well, it's a, it's an amazing mezcal tasting event, um, wow. with which incorporates food from different restaurants in the cities that we have the event. And they provide bites along with cocktail sips so that everybody can get the full experience of of mezcal. And we try and do it in kind of a cultural uh, situation. So, so you come up with an excuse for drinking mezcal. Basically, we yeah. come up with the excuse yeah. for drinking mezcal. Right. But you never need an excuse to drink mezcal because you should just always drink mezcal. It's perfect How for How about a little occasion. history of mezcal? Because I was actually at an event yesterday – and Vic Albisu from Del Campo and uh, Taco Bamba was pouring some. And there were a lot of questions in the audience about mezcal. People were like, what's the difference between mezcal and tequila? And So can you explain it just a little bit? Well, first, there's mezcal historically is the umbrella term that's used to apply to any agave distillate in okay. Mexico. And so tequila is a mezcal. Tequila became its own entity before it had been called mezcal tequila, to say that this is, you know, a mezcal from the town of Tequila. Mm-hmm. And then Tequila got its own denomination, and it became Tequila on its own. Mm-hmm. And in the 1990s, mezcal got its own denomination, and it can be produced in nine different states um, in in Mexico. 
and they're adding two more states to it. So soon 11 states will be able to use the denomination. Mm -hmm. And basically the difference is um, a flavor difference and a process difference. So with tequila, you can only use the blue agave in making it. And with mezcal, you can use, you know, 30-plus different types of agave in making it. Okay. Um, and the majority of mezcal is still produced in a traditional manner in which the agave is harvested. Uh, the hearts are cut out. The leaves are cut off of the agave. Okay, we just talked about this with farming. Like, we um, do this. It's done, like, humanely, right? It is done humanely. Okay, just making sure. Everything is done. That's a bad um, joke. That's <laughs> insensitive. Ooh. But, oh, I got you now. But it is important because this is all about giving people information and transparency. Sure. So, you know. But so <laughs> the hearts are cut down. Um, they look like pineapples. And then they get roasted in an earth pit oven with um, stones that have been fired by hot coals. It's covered. And then they slow roast. So mm -hmm. you get this roasty, smoky flavor, which right. is what distinguishes the flavor of mezcal. And then from there, it's crushed, fermented, and distilled, and then bottled pretty much immediately. And so a lot of people talk about mezcal as always being super smoky. Is that just like, is that some of the like more well-known brands sort of taking the style and running with it instead of like, because I think a lot of the smaller brands aren't nearly as smoky. Well, I don't think the majority of mezcal is smoky. Okay. Um, I think that, you know, again, it has that roast flavor. I think that it's easy to describe it as smoky because it's just like, oh, yeah, it's smoky. Where right. It's like, no, not really. I mean, if you have a mezcal that tastes really smoky, like there could have been liquid smoke added in, like okay. there just could be something wrong with it okay. um, or just not produced well. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, really good mezcal is just, it's like drinking a scotch or a whiskey. Right, well, I'm let's talk to Eric. Come on, you got to come up to Hello. the mic. Hi there. So Hi. you actually produce mezcal. No, actually I'm, I'm working and I represent like 23 different master distillers. Okay. In Mexico City. Okay, um, so I let's talk about the ones you brought in today. These are gorgeous. Well, um, I have like 49 different expressions. So it is hard for me to carry all these bottles, but uh, mm -hmm. I, you guys can try. I bring probably like uh, 10 more. I had no idea what those were over there. Okay, so those are just samples of more mezcal. Yes. Okay. Oh, Somebody get me a bag. Okay. I hope everybody Ubered today because there's going to be a lot of tasting going on in here. So what I do, I do research about traditional mezcal all over Mexico, basically mm -hmm. going to what is the original mezcal mm -hmm. in every single community. So... You find in every single state is a family maker. And in the future, we love to have micro regions because every single master distiller is uh, a new story. It's like wine. Well, so, right, we I was going to say, is there a terroir to each yes. mezcal, just yes. like wine? It's just like wine, yes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it is uh, different from native agaves, uh, different methods of production. Mm -hmm. uh, fermentation and cow high fermentation, uh, wood tanks, a lot of different uh, methods. Uh, even uh, type of distillations is uh, like Filipino kind of type. Um, so it means it's clay and wood, and they distill by that. Uh, okay. really so do you find that it's still in America that people don't understand the difference between tequila and mezcal? Yes. I mean, uh, uh, you better teach them something. Well, that's why this event that's is so important. Yeah. Let's get on this right now. I mean, uh, we have, uh, no, even in Mexico, we have a uh, tradition to have uh, tequila uh, uh, on our tables like every day. Mm -hmm. I think the, uh, this is uh, in the United States. Uh, 
we already have apps and everything, have information about tequila, and we have tequila tastings. But now, uh, when Mexico on the Bottle starts, that's what we try to do. To There's tequila the on the difference. table at every meal, really? No, 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 not really. We I was going to say, if you get Trump we, down we there actually, for five days, you forget the wall. We have beers and stuff. <laughs> but, uh, no, we, we don't really, our tradition is not drinking tequila, only if you really sad and you want to see your girlfriend and you can take shots. And, yeah, this well, is the only we, way that you can do so that. So why don't we talk to Johanna a little bit because I want to hear about what she's doing. Do you want us to try one of these? What do you want us to do for as far as tasting one? Which one would you yes, want us to taste? Uh, now that you mentioned about like a smoky yes. mezcal, well, for us and our mezcals, mm-hmm. uh, we need to. Let, why don't it you want to pour some? You want to? Yeah. Okay. Okay. We'll come do over that. here. You uh, pick which one you want to pour. All right. And now we Johanna, have Johanna in. So um, you have a business called Manos de Maiz, uh, the hands of corn. Yes. Look at that. Well. I'm so trilingual. So what's that all about? And what is the true taste of corn? Are we not tasting the true taste of corn? We are not in the U.S. I think it's something about Mexican cuisine coming up and. Uh, it's becoming a trend now, but the thing is, you know, how in the U.S. corn is being grown more for, you know, like making syrups and they like feed in cattle. Like and corn syrup and stuff exactly. like that, right? And like it's something about in Mexico, the tradition in the land is like rotating and having different crops. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because in the mezcal sometimes it's something that you get, like the terroir mm-hmm. is part of that, um, you know, different crops that you see in the, in the land. So, you know, like in Mexico, corn is life. Like we eat corn, and there's so many representations of it, you know? Right. Like a tortilla can be used as a spoon, and like we have so many things that we can make with corn. And yeah, like I worked for a while in Mexican restaurants in DC, and I realized it wasn't a good tortilla, so I really wanted to bring that in. And uh-huh. you know, like there's a lot of Mexican, like, like a lot of street food in Mexico City, which is my hometown. Right. And I grew up eating that. Like my mom can tell you, she will make it, and I will eat it. But now I have to make it. And her mom is here, so <laughs> we can ask. Is here. <laughs> so right. you're now making these tortillas here in the city. Yeah. I know you're at several farmer's markets. Yes. And uh, where else can we find you? Well, um, everything. It's farmer's markets, but I also can do like catering and special events. Mm-hmm. So if they say, uh, right now I'm starting to make like, the, the tortillas and sell them by the pack. So if people want to. Like you, you have know, in studio Exactly. Today. Make their own tacos. And I'm also for those that want to be more adventurous and make their own either tamales, tortillas, or anything else, I also make the masa. Mm-hmm. And right now, I I source from a small uh, community of uh, farmers in Michoacán, where your avocados come from. Okay. But I also am sourcing yellow corn from Amish country, mm-hmm. which is great because it's also the American corn that it, it has a lot of flavor, you know? All right. Okay, so, so you're able to use that. So I want to go back to Susan very quickly. We've got yes. one minute. Where's the event? When? How do we get tickets? Do we need tickets? All of that. It's at the Mexican Cultural uh, Institute tomorrow, Monday, April 30th. It goes from 5.30 to 9 p.m. And sadly, we just sold out today. Oh, my God. Um, I mean, good for you. New geese for the audience. Yes. Um, But, you know, I would would just like to say there's so many stories to Mescal. And you can look at it from a process level, from an agricultural level. Uh, from a cultural historic uh, history point of view. Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty of being able to have an event like this is that people can come and they can approach Mescal from all different angles and right. learn more about it. And it's not an intimidating thing. Well, so how many, how many Mescals will be there? Uh, probably about 140 different types of mezcal. Okay. I see a and, and then Bucknor. Johanna will be there yeah. with food. Be and there. They'll be, okay, and great. Eric will be there with and his Eric. mezcal. Okay, Eric, just tell us quickly what you poured us. 
this is Mezcal from the state of San Luis Potosí with mm -hmm. Agave Salmiana. This is a native uh, agave. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, one of the older distills you, we found on Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, this is um, a method of old clay distillation. Okay. It's mm -hmm. super fragrant, really yes. fragrant. Um, like I say, it is a, a really good mezcal. Need to have a really good smell and aftertaste. Okay. And the proof is a little bit higher, but yeah, it is delicious. Thank you. All right. Thank so you since so we've been talking about Mexico, let's change the subject and talk about Mexico <laughs> some more <laughs> with Ivan Irakanen and his chef Graham Bartlett. Uh, Ivan, you've been on the show. You've talked about Ambar, which is your Serbian restaurant. You, you, why go? Well, and he used to do cocktails. You've done a ton of things. I mean, and I know you worked with Richard Sandoval. You go, you're going back to your roots, I guess? Yes. Okay, with well, two restaurants. Serbian-Mexican. Right. I know, the borders are very close. But you, you're, you're really throwing the gauntlet to the world, opening two restaurants at once. It's a dual concept in one building. We're doing a fast casual concept called TTT, Tacos, Torta, and Tequila. Mm -hmm. We're going to be on ground level. We'll serve breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And we also will make... Uh, our own tortillas in-house. We're importing corn, and we're trying to do it as authentic as possible. Mm -hmm. We want to try uh, try to showcase uh, Mexican cuisine in in our own way. On the second floor, we're doing Buena Vida, which will be contemporary Mexican cuisine. Where we you can, haven't said where, where the place, where the location is. Where is uh, the location? Uh, we are coming to Montgomery County, eighty four hundred seven Ramsey Avenue. Okay, in Silver Spring, and oh, this is our first restaurant well, in Spring Montgomery hopping, County and it? first mm -hmm. restaurant in uh, Maryland. And we are very excited. So what are you... Well, let's talk to well, Graham. So how did you find Graham and tell us about... Oh, me and Graham, we've been working together for the last 10 years. Yeah, oh. we've known each other for a very long time. Here, let's get okay, up in front so of the mic. Okay, so tell us a little bit about how you guys work together on the menu. Uh, it's collaboration probably about a year ago when we first started about the concept. Uh, you know, we bounced back and forth a lot of ideas. Like you mentioned, we want to do something authentic, uh, you know, Stick to the roots with the with the more fast casual concept, and then mm -hmm. also play around a little bit with the upstairs uh, Buena Vida concept as well. So we started testing probably about a year ago. Mm -hmm. uh, just did it very slowly. We're not trying to rush anything. Uh, are these your recipes? Are these? Yeah, correct. I mean, it's myself. Uh, started on it like I said a while back, and then in collaboration with a lot of other really talented chefs that we've worked well, with in the past. Give us Can an example us of what you're doing. Uh, you know, like you mentioned for the ground floor for TTT, it's. Uh, Tacos, tequilas, tortas. So we're obviously. So wait, is there going to be mezcal? Absolutely. Absolutely okay, yeah. just checking. <laughs> Can't live without it. So uh, you know, uh, very very fundamental tacos. We're not trying to invent anything there. Taking you know, they're my recipes per se, but it, not really inventing anything. I mean, it's very traditional. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, run of the table there, and then with the tortas as well, same thing. Uh, you know, very typical stuff you'd see in Mexico, more street food, if you will. Uh, and then upstairs with Buena Vida. Well, when you say street food, how about explaining that? Ingredients. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, or uh, just what it looks uh, like. Ingredients to what everybody else has been discussing. Uh, we, you know, we do, we, we're trying to make everything a little bit, you know, like I said, authentic, but a little bit more healthy and light as well. <clears throat> Using as much organic stuff as possible, local pork, chicken, uh, you know, seafood, uh, a lot of sustainable stuff in the Chesapeake. Um, but how, like, can you give us an example of dishes? Like, I feel oh, like yeah, we, we're getting a really broad yeah, Overview, yeah. I mean, but I see without that any she has specifics. Some, uh, here, like chicken tinga, that's an example. But mm -hmm. we might do uh, something very similar to that. Uh, you know, we'll do barbacoa, which is like a slow cooked beef. Isn't uh, that barbecue? Not in the, not in our sense. No. Right. <laughs> I am from the south here in the United States, so okay. I know that that runs also, but that's very mm -hmm. different. Um, and then you know, uh, 
you know, some of the other stuff like chicken milanesa. We're going to do a torta ahogada, which is like a smothered pork sandwich. Uh, very, very, you'll see that in the streets of Mexico a lot. And to my knowledge, I haven't seen anybody doing it around here. Uh, so we'll have some kitschy stuff as well that I think, like I said, it's very traditional, but I think that uh, it'll be fun okay. and unique. Well, right. Why don't we go to break and then we can... Okay, terrific. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'd love to hear more about what you're thinking of doing for the upstairs, upstairs area right, of the yeah. restaurant. This is David and Nikki Nellis with Foodie and the Beast. We'll be back in just a minute. All right. We are back on Foodie and the Beast with David and Nikki Nellis. We're talking great Mexican cuisine. Before we get back to it, I just want to thank again our, our uh, sponsors, the folks at ProFish, the market at River Falls in downtown Potomac, Central Farm Markets, and Meat Crafters. Thank you for supporting the show. So, Yvonne... You're going to be doing that $25 small plates all you can eat thing upstairs, right? Uh, it'll be a little bit more expensive, 35 no. <laughs> uh, What? When you come, it'll be 25 Okay. Well, well, well says, now we'll come. Uh, Buena Vida will we'll copy the same concept that we're doing at Ambar, which is very successful, and, and that's what we are recognizable for. For $35, we're going to have an unlimited, unlimited dinner option, and I think we're going to try to serve Mexican food a little bit different. When you traditionally, you, you came and you get your appetizer, you get your entree, and that will be the end of your dinner, we're trying to sam- have a sample like Fiesta dining at Buena Vida where you can have unlimited options and you can, you can taste five to, five to seven different plates per person mm-hmm. and have a completely different experience eating same food. But it, through one course of one dinner, you can try your ceviche, you can have one taco, you can try some specialties of mole, you can try sopes and kind of make it more exciting and different. And then for lunch, where we're serving $19.99, we're going to have unlimited uh, lunch option, which will be the same. But that'll be upstairs too? Uh, that's upstairs only in Buena Vida. Okay. Uh, at TTT, it'll be street food. It's affordable. It's two dollars Right, it's $3 fast casual. Taco. It's fast casual. In and out, it's, right? It's always the same. Yeah, we have okay. 50 seats. We're going to be takeout, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm-hmm. I think we're, we're, when you look at a whole house, it's, 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 it's going to be a little bit for everything, for everybody. Well, what does breakfast look like? Yeah, that Graham will talk more about that. Um, you know, it's pretty simple. We we didn't want to overdo it uh, as far as, uh, you know, a lot of breakfast food. I think people want their eggs their own way or whatever. So we put the onus on the uh, on the product itself. Once again, you know, we're using organic corn for the tortillas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously we have a lot of sauces that we make in-house. We kind of let them build their own flavors when it comes to that. I mean, nobody wants a... So will you be walking down a line telling somebody what you want? Uh, no, we'll have a you know an array of different sauces that we make, and then, you know, with the server or just by their own uh, choice, you know, we'll, we'll offer up a couple different things they can dress themselves. So that's for the tacos uh, predominantly. The tortas, yeah, we will go ahead and season those with a little bit spicier stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we do like a steak and egg uh, torta, if you will, and then, uh, you know, a couple of variations of of uh, mm-hmm. egg tacos. Um, like I said, we're using our own, uh, we're making a lot of our own bacon and chorizo and stuff like that at local farms uh, with the pork, for example. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a little bit, not quite as dressed up, I would say, but there's definitely there that the spicy option is there if you want it. And then you guys are doing the same thing in Arlington down the road? Correct. That That's through the open end of the year. The same concept. TTT Buena Vida, we're opening Silver Spring. And same, same thing, upstairs, downstairs yeah, kind of concept? Yeah, the same concept, correct. Okay. So who, I, I read in the notes, uh, Victor Quinones is a, an artist. He's a street artist? Yes. He's one of the well-known street artists, Mexican street artists. And, and we hired him. He did some amazing murals mm-hmm. outside and uh, at the exterior of the building, which... 
are already done, and, and we get a lot of yeah, it's up, and you a have lot to of see people it. knocking. So, is street artist a nice way of saying graffiti artist? But now they're no. respectable, or is he no, actually not an artist? Who... No, he's very, very no. respectable artist. He actually de- designs shoes. He works for All Star Converse. He designs shoes for them. You see he the murals all over town. Those are street yeah. artists. That's what they're doing. Yeah. Like the I, fabulous I, I, murals very, all very over town. But the street artist, street artist used to be graffiti artists. Like when? Like. 20 years ago. Now they're respectable, okay. right? Yes. Okay. All right. So, and then um, uh, the only other question I have is the actually, the opening date in Silver Spring. Uh, we Ish. are working towards opening the, the end of the, the week. Like I said, in four or five days, we should open the door. Excellent. Cool. Okay, All great. right, guys. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you both thank very you. much. Thank All you right. for having us. Back to Georgia. Okay. What yeah. did we pour? This is gorgeous. Um, so this is Carat Salice, uh, Cellar uh, Ritually Tetra. So... Uh, one of the most common grape varietals in Georgia is uh, Mitzvani, but Mitzvani actually has hyper-local um, varietals. So Rachuli Mitzvani is from this specific region of um, Racha. Okay. Um, so it's a really cool, unique varietal. Tetra also is a very cool, unique varietal. Um, they have over 400 uniquely Georgian varietals in Georgia, um, and these are both completely uniquely Georgian, hyper-local. But so would you call this an orange wine? This this is an amber wine. Okay, so it is. The distinction that I that I see between amber and orange to me, uh, amber is done in that quivery. Orange uh, is done in that new world style that let's say France is doing it in. Okay. To me, that's the distinction I personally make. Okay, that be makes skin sense. Skin contact without necessarily being in an underground right. clay egg, which is the Georgian so, style. So well, so let me ask you. So when people come in, you know, when um when the uninitiated looks at a wine list and they see a bunch of Brands that they don't know and grapes that they are completely unfamiliar with. How do you how do you teach educate them in a way that's not condescending, of course, but that sort of lets them know that this is nothing to be scared of? Because I think a lot of people would see something like this and be like, "Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what that is. I'm afraid to drink it." Well, we actually build it into our menu. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the kind of the concept that I came up with in the menu was take a leap or play it safe. Mm-hmm. So, are you walking into here going? I want to experience something super new and cool and like nothing I've ever had before. Mm-hmm. Educate me, server. Or right. do you walk in and you go, I like Chardonnay, you know, give me a Chardonnay mm-hmm. and we'll find you something like that. Are all know? the wines Georgian? Every single wine is Georgian except for the one named Armenia Pomegranate, which is from Armenia. Okay. So, well, <laughs> yeah. then you brought, well up a, right, you brought up a really good <laughs> point. Right, we really reached for that one. Yeah. So let's say somebody comes in yeah. and says, I normally drink big, oaky, buttery Chardonnay from California. No judgment. So, <laughs> so um, no right? Yeah. So what kind of Georgian wine would you recommend? So, unfortunately, we don't have anything like that. <laughs> good, So, good luck <laughs> yeah. to you people with bad taste. So, so, go ahead. No, no. It has nothing to do with, you know, good or bad taste. It's just that they they are not doing wines in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I can definitely find you a big amber that that is, um, you know, high in body, maybe has some, you know, some some strength like that to it. But it, it's not going to be oaked. Okay. Um, they're just not doing that in Georgia. Okay. You're, you're, you're looking for different qualities in Georgian wine. Georgian wine... They go. They have high fat food like France does, mm-hmm. but they combat it with tannins, not acidity. So you're going to find a very different, um, you know, manner in which they've dealt with their food than, let's say, France has. Well, speaking of the food, uh, you brought in some bread today and some other dishes. Why don't you tell us what you brought in? Because you were talking about the bread right. off air. Yes. So a lot of times when people hear about Georgian bread, they think about the stuffed breads, the hachapuri stuffed with cheese, and those are fantastic, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other kinds of Georgian bread as well. The most common one 
which we have here is called Shotis Puri. And it's basically, it's a wheat bread. It's similar to a naan a little bit. And it's cooked in a tone oven, which is um, linguistically and historically related to a tandoor. It's basically a big clay pot, and you make it real hot and slap dough against the side, and it cooks in five or ten minutes at extremely high temperature. Mm -hmm. And so we cook all of that in-house in a Georgian-style oven and then use that to serve with dips. Like we have a grilled vegetable dip here or with the pâtés that you had a minute ago or with lots of our dishes. Well, you know, a lot of this got, I mean, back through the ages, got culturally mixed because when the Persians invaded, they took northern India, they took Georgia, they took a lot of places, and then they got pushed down in all those different cultures mix. So, I mean... That's right. I mean, Georgia is on the west end of the Silk Road, the east end of the ancient Greek Empire. Uh, Jason and the Argonauts were in Georgia. Prometheus was in Georgia. That sounds like a rock band. I, I saw that movie. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of Georgian history that people just don't know as Georgian because it wasn't Georgia as such. Well, you know, it was hidden behind the Iron Curtain for so long. Well, it was hidden behind the Iron Curtain for a little while, but it was a lot longer in the the Ottomans, the Persians, and all sorts of the Russian Empire before the Soviets. They were on their own for a while. So it's a a complex piece of real estate. And when you're up in the mountains and hiding in your family tower, which they literally have in some regions of Georgia where every family has a tower they can go hide. Well, that's like Italy. Like Italy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot like Italy in in some of those uh, parts of Georgia. And so – They've held on to their own culture, their own language, their own alphabet, their own cuisine, even though they have certainly absorbed little bits of things from lots of different cultures. I don't even know this. So you're going to give a little topography and geography sure. lesson. Belarus is how far from Georgia? Uh, Belarus is probably is – they don't share a border. It's northwest, probably about 1,000 miles. So directly north is Russia, specifically Chechnya. Um, and then as you go around, you hit Armenia. Uh, sorry, you hit Azerbaijan, then Armenia, then Turkey, then the Black Sea. Okay. Because all of the, I mean, again, all of those cultures, there was like somebody put them in a bowl and, Ab- and yeah, right. them yeah. all They were on the Silk Road, so I mean, you had assorted Mongols and folks like that coming through all the time. So. so let's talk about your restaurant and when it's open and when people can get in and try everything, what you guys are doing. Great. Well, we are at 11th and M mm-hmm. in Shaw. We mm-hmm. opened in November and we're open for lunch every day but Monday. We're open for, mm. and that's... 11.30 to 3, and then we have happy hour from 3 to 5, and then dinner from 5 until we close. On so basically we- you open at 11.30. <laughs> you, exactly. Right. And then at, uh, on the weekends we open at 10. So we have brunch starting at 10, and we've taken some traditional Georgian dishes like the khachapuri because we can't have any meal without khachapuri. Right. But then we've also adapted Georgian flavors, Georgian spices, and other Georgian dishes to make omelets, to make um, – pancakes that are using Georgian ingredients. And so, yeah, lunch and brunch, there's a little bit more adaptation. But everything's Georgian, so come check it out. Okay. we got to wrap up because the show's going to end. The show is over. Holy cow. <laughs> holy cow. Or should I say holy guacamole? Okay. I don't know. But anyways, follow uh, everything you heard about on the show today. You can find on the list. Follow Nikki on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And listen to her on WTOP Live every Thursday at 1240. That's right. Thank you all for joining us today. This was a delicious show. You can watch it all on Facebook Live and check us out on social media. There's lots going on there, too. Everybody, please have a delicious week.